And uh, we're going to continue through Isaiah chapter 45 and hopefully on the 46. We'll see what the Lord has for us tonight. But you'll remember last time we began uh, to talk about one of the more incredible prophecies in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah names Cyrus uh, by name 220 some odd years before he's born. Isaiah names him. Uh, the Lord lays out for him that that's going to be the deliverer. And Ezra, we see Cyrus being the one who sets the children of Israel free from their Babylonian captivity. He allows them to go back and begin to rebuild. And here in Isaiah, before the nation's been taken captive, before Babylon is really on the scene as a world power, we have God calling Cyrus out by name before he's born. So it's an it's amazing prophecy, and it spoke about how he would take Babylon. Daniel, in Daniel, I think Daniel chapter 6, Daniel says that Babylon will fall without bloodshed. The, the, the battle's hardly going to take any effort at all. What we discover in history, the, the regular people in Babylon, the merchants, didn't even know that the Medo-Persians had taken over the city for three days. And we talked about the fact that, that the Cyrus, the Lord said, he would dry up the water. He dried up the Euphrates. Came in under the gate, under the wall where the water flowed. Brought the water down to about knee level. When he went under there, there's supposed to be two iron gates that would have been locked. But God said in chapter 45, I'm going to open the gates. And when he got to the gates, the gates were open. Medo-Persian army walked in the same night. Belshazzar saw the writing on the wall. Remember many, many tekel you farsing? You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And your kingdom has been taken from you and given to another. And so we see the fall of Babylon. Here Isaiah is, has, was talking about. We, we spoke about that last week and we come down. Uh, we'll pick it up at about verse 8 uh, just by way of... Uh, backing up a little bit but in verse 8 he says now rain down you heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness let the earth open let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together for i the lord have created it and the lord is going to be doing a comparison all through this chapter in isaiah between those who follow false gods or idols and those who follow the one true god and over and over again he's going to tell them hey everything that anywhere that there is a possibility of the hope of help is going to come from him. And those who follow idols are going to be disappointed because those idols can't save them. And those things, it's no different for those things that we put our hope and trust in. If we're putting our hope and trust in the almighty United States of America, you will be disappointed. I can tell you you're going to be disappointed because I've gone through the entire book and the United States is not mentioned. Which would mean, at best, she's not a player. At worst, could be vastly worse than that. But the reality is, we think we're, we're something because we've been around for a couple hundred years. The Assyrian Empire that we study in the scriptures, Assyrians. Now, they got wiped out by the uh, Babylonians, and then Babylonians got wiped out by the Medo-Persians. They got wiped out by the Grecians. They got wiped out by the Romans. And every one of those kingdoms ruled for longer than 200 years. The Assyrians for 700. 
Rome for a thousand, depending on whose figures you want to go with when the decline of Rome takes place. But the reality is, that's ancient. You go to Israel with me when we go to Israel next year. If you come to Israel with me, one of the things you're going to hear is the guide laugh at what you call antiques. Because they just call that junk in Israel. Because it's not old. In Israel, an antique is five, six hundred years old. Not, you know, a hundred years old. And so it's, it's a totally different mindset. And when we look, the Lord is saying, listen, I am the one brings the rain from heaven. I bring in righteousness. I, I've brought about this work. Remember when the nation of Israel goes into captivity to Babylon, God cures them of their idolatry. Now they might think it's a horrible thing, but God was working good, right? What did Paul write for us in Romans eight twenty eight? For we know all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, right? So everything in our life that comes into our life happens for our good and God's glory. What do we see here? He cures their idolatry and ultimately God's glorified because he tells them about it before it ever takes place. He goes on now in verse 9. And he says, now woe to him who strives with his maker. Now at this point, God is talking about those who are disputing God's right to bring this judgment that's coming. The right that God has to put the nation into captivity and the right that God has to deliver them by the hands of a Gentile. And so the Lord says, listen, he says, woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? You ever had that argument with the Lord? God, what are you doing? What is happening in my life? Why all this chaos? Why all this strife? Why all this difficulty? Why are things so hard? Why, 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 why was the first word recorded in the scripture, the very first words recorded in the scripture by the one who betrayed Jesus Christ. Judas' first words. Why? Because where does why leave us? Where does it take us? What journey does it lead us down to? It leads us to a journey of disappointment and bitterness toward God. Not a journey of faith and trust. Faith and trust says, even though I can't see, I will believe. Even though I don't understand... I will trust. But when we've come into that place where we're crying out and we're saying to God, as the clay to the one who is making the pot, what are you doing to me? What we're saying is, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. I, I, I don't believe what the Word of God says. What does the Word of God say in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven? God says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of good and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's true or false. It's not true sometimes and not true other times. It's either always true or it's never true. The Word of God is always true. And those things that are happening in our life, God has brought in our life and He is working a far more exceeding weight of glory that we can't even begin to understand. And sometimes He's working that work in us. And sometimes He's working that work in someone who's watching us go through the things that we're going through. But always, God has his purpose, his reason. And I don't want to be that pot shouting at the, at the potter, what are you doing? 
spinning on the wheel, screaming, ah, trying to be all tense. I'm not going to let him take any more clay out of the inside of me because I want to be a big, beautiful vase and not a wash pot. We need to be whatever God needs us to be. We need to recognize that God is doing a perfect work. And he hasn't forgotten. He hasn't missed you. He wasn't, he, he didn't go, oh my gosh, I forgot about that one. Haven't been checking up on Jackie lately. Oh, Lord only knows where he is. No, God knows. God's doing a, a neat work, a perfect work, and we can trust him. Or, or shall your handiwork say, he has no hands. He didn't make me. Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? To the parents that bring forth the child. It's, it's like that baby looking up and saying, what have you done? <laughs> Just sh- take your bottle. Sometimes we're in that place. We haven't grown to the point where we really understand everything that's going on. Or, or God has even worked that work in our life. But we need to learn to trust him, to trust the one who put all this together. For look what he says in verse 11. For thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker. Who made Israel? Did it just randomly happen? You know, Abraham just decided one day, you know, I think I'll just go wandering. And then, you know, he waited 100 years, finally had a kid. And that kid, he's, he's, he's Isaac and Isaac has a couple of twins, and then on down, and pretty soon you got a nation. Well, it just worked out that way. The Lord made Israel. He made Israel as an example for us to look and see how God works in the lives of us individually. Because he took Jacob, who was a liar, and he turned him into Israel. Jacob, deceiver, Israel, governed by God. That which is governed by God. So the Lord says to him in verse 11, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands. You command me, for I made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. Now, Again, he's referring to Cyrus. The argument is, what are you doing, Lord, that you're using a Gentile? And here the Lord says, he reminds him, I created everything. I created the heavens. Which, by the way, the language used here in the Hebrew speaks to the fact that the heavens are constantly expanding. What are they discovering today in science? That the heavens are constantly expanding. Because when I was a kid, they said that the, that the universe was like 4 billion light years across. Now... The universe is like 40 billion light years across. It's crazy the, the numbers that are changing because science is discovering, like God said, the universe is constantly expanding. It's as though he grabbed the hold of the universe and flung it. And ever since then, it's been going. Well, he says, not only have I done that, but I raised up Cyrus in righteousness And I will direct all his ways. And he will build my city and let my exiles go free. And not for price nor reward, says the Lord of Lords. I kind of like that. I would like it to be said of me in the end. The things that I did, I didn't do for price or reward. I did as a response to God loving me. I did it as a response to him. 
That's what the Lord is laying out for us here. It wasn't about what he got paid or what reward he got. It was simply his response to the Lord. Now, in verse 14, Isaiah now looks to the future of Israel. Now, this is a, think about how this would blow the mind of you if you were in Israel this time. Now, you're not in captivity. You just whooped the Assyrians. Well, you didn't, but God did. Now you hear there's another captivity coming. It's roughly 70 years away. And, and, and then after that captivity, you hear you're going to be there. Uh, Jeremiah is the one who's going to tell them how long they'll be there. But then they hear that Cyrus, this Gentile, he's going to let them go. And they're going to come back into the land. And you might start thinking, what is the future? I mean, our future is all, is all chaos. What's going on? Well, verse 14 speaks to that yet future event taking place in Israel. Look, thus says the Lord, The labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. One day, all the nations of the world will bring tribute to Israel. All the nations of the world. I can tell you when it happens. The millennial reign of Christ. At the millennial reign of Christ, the scripture speaks of the fact that all the nations remaining, whatever nations those will be, will bring tribute to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And here he's saying, hey, one day they're all going to bring this to Israel. And then look at this, they shall walk behind you. And they shall come over in change and they shall bow down to you. And they will make supplication to you saying, surely God is in you now one time it was just going to be surely god is is around you or god is with you but what during the millennial reign where's god going to be on the throne of david where's that going to be in the midst of the camp of israel so when they come to israel people will say god is in you i can see him he can be he can be spoken to as jesus christ reigns and rules forever and they will say there is no other god there is no other truly you are a god who hide yourself O god of israel the savior they shall be ashamed and and disgraced all of them they shall go in confusion together who are makers of idols so again he's making this comparison okay you have a now right now israel the israel that this is written to has idols everywhere in their house they're, they're making these gods. Isaiah talked about it. They cut down a piece of lumber. They cut it in half. Half of it they use to cook bread. The other half they carve into an idol that they put on their mantle and pray to and hope that that idol will help them. It's ridiculous. And, and that's the point that God is making. And then he goes on here to say, they'll be disgraced. They'll be ashamed. They'll be in confusion. Because idols can't help. Idols can't save. But listen... Verse 17, Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Now, we were talking about this morning how the the word of God can be our foundation for absolute truth. Everlasting salvation doesn't end. So how can there be what's known as the the, the, the doctrine that says that the church has replaced Israel. That Israel is no longer the apple of God's eye. That's kind of like saying everlasting didn't last. 
God said Israel will be saved with an everlasting salvation. The work, the promise that God made to Israel was a, a promise that did not depend on Israel's obedience. There were other promises that depended on their obedience. But the promise that they would be a nation, that they would be blessed, that God would be their God, and they would be his people that only depended on the Lord. And he's going to keep that promise. And the beauty of him keeping that promise for them is that means he keeps that promise for you and I. For Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. How do I know that that's absolute? Because it was absolute when he said it to the nation Israel. So it's absolute for us. An eternal, everlasting salvation. And you will not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain. Interesting phrase there in the scripture for those of you who are students of the word of God. Genesis 1 uh, verse 2, and the world became without form and void. The word is the world became tohu vabohu. But here in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, it says that God did not create it, tohu vabohu. God did not create it void and empty. There are two camps uh, that will argue about this probably until the time we see Jesus. One camp sees between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 a gap. It's called the gap theory. In that gap, they place a creation that the Lord made, Satan fell, destroyed or perverted the creation, and it became void, and God began again and said, let there be light. One camp sees that. And there's good folks that see that. Another camp says, no, that's not necessary. See, the the gap theorists, they look at it and they say, in that gap theory you can place... um, all the all the the prehistoric animals and all the fossils that people find and and all these things but but guys like henry morris will say well you don't need that because you can create all those things in the flood of genesis uh, chapter 7 so when we look at it the interesting thing is that the point was god did not make it useless or pointless there's a a whole vein of philosophy in the world that says life has no meaning the only meaning that there is to life is whatever you make of it there's no point no purpose but the scripture says god didn't create it empty and meaningless he created it with purpose he created it that it would be inhabited he goes on to say who formed it to be inhabited there was a point and a purpose behind every part of creation so, again, this verse is one that folks point to for the gap theory. Um, if you want to pin me down on whether I'm a gap theorist or not, good luck. However, comma, <clears throat> I, I do happen to agree with Dr. Henry Morris that uh, every form of fossil that we have to date could be explained by the flood and the, the way that the flood would have rapidly covered entire areas full of all the beasts that were in them and formed the fossil record that we find today the difference i have is with the geological record and we don't want to get into that because that's circular reasoning and they first they make a rule and then they live by that rule but there's no science behind the rule 
But we'll say that for another day. When we come back around in a couple of years to Genesis, we'll go through it then. But here we are. The reason, the point here, I think, that the Lord is making, there's a reason, there's a purpose behind all of creation. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret. Do you realize that today, anybody who wants to know what God's Word says can pick up a Bible almost anywhere, open it up, and there it is. What the Lord is saying is, I haven't spoken this in such a way that no one can come to know who I am. In fact, you go down to the deepest, darkest jungle in Amazon, and I've been close to it, and you get down in there, and you discover that they have an understanding of who God is. Why? Because in, in the book of Romans, God said that He is evident in creation. And that those who seek Him, they're going to find Him. And that He can reveal Himself. And today, even in Amazon River, you can find the Bible. Book by book being torn out and passed through the jungle, racing the anaconda to see who gets there first. So we got guys going out with the Word of God. He has not spoken in secret or in a dark place on the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. There's a purpose. I, the Lord, speak righteousness and I declare things that are right. God's Word is absolute truth. You can bank on it. Every part. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry wood of their carved images and pray to a God that cannot save. You know, before we bust on those guys too hard, think about the stupid things we trust in. The dumb things we put our hope in. It's not a whole lot different than what they did with chopping down that piece of wood and praying to it that it would save. Or praying, God, make my bank account grow. Or Lord, if uh, the tomorrow when I when I go down to to Vegas and I pull on the one armed bandit, let me win millions of dollars. Just different idols, but the same kind of an attitude. <clears throat> Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, and there is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Again, all throughout the book of Isaiah, you're going to see allusions to the Trinity. You're going to see God the Father call Himself the Lord and the Savior, that He's the only one and there is no other. And you're going to hear the exact same phrase used of Jesus Christ. And you're going to see them described together, as I shared with you before, by the Hebrew word echad, which not, is not yahid, which is one and only one, but it is echad, which means a, a, a compound unity. The concept is one cluster of grapes, one group of something, one united front. How is it first defined in the Bible? In the relationship between a husband and a wife. The two become one. First time echad is mentioned. Later on, hero Israel, the Lord your God, he is Echad, unified. Here we see God declared as the Savior, but hang on. In verse 22 it says, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Look to me and be saved. Doesn't that remind you of Numbers when they were bitten by the fiery serpents 
and, and uh, Moses was told to put up that brass serpent and everyone who looks to it will live. And then when Jesus speaking to, to Nick at night, uh, he comes to, uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and, and has all these questions. And Jesus says, the son of man, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. And if I am lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself look to me the beautiful thing is he says here look he doesn't say see me he says look to me look to me all who will look they will find salvation verse 23 for i have sworn by myself the word has gone out my mouth in righteousness and will not return listen that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath sound familiar Later on, Paul's going to refer to this scripture and say that this is about whom? That the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father, that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh, God of very God. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come. And all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. For in the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. In chapter 46 he begins, Bel bows down. Bel is the, is the god of the city Babylon. He's the, the city god for Babylon, Bel. And Nebo stoops. Nebo is Bel's son. Now Babylon's not even ruling yet. But the Lord is already going to begin to speak about the destruction of Babylon and their being uh, taken away. First, they're going to take uh, Judah captive. Then we're going to see them also go into captivity. Now look what he says. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. You see, whenever uh, the, the nation was coming, when word comes of Cyrus or an invading army, the first thing they would do is take all their idols, put them on these beasts, and they would go outside the city. Well, get our, let the gods get away. They're, they're not going to get very far. And that's what the Lord says. Your, your idols... Are a burden to you. Your idols will become a burden to you. But look at verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. You see the difference? The idols become the burden of those who, who are trying to save their idols, but to God, His people, He is the burden bearer. He's the one who bears his people. Rather than the people bearing their idols in Babylon, God is going to bear his people. He's going to carry them on his back. Later on, he's going to tell us, uh, like an eagle, he's going to put them upon his back and carry them. Even to your old age, I am he. And even to gray hairs, I will carry you. God is going to carry the nation of Israel. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. You see the contrast between those who worship or, or hope in idols. Now, for us, 
it's no different if our hope is in anything that is not Almighty God and His deliverance. If our hope is in the IRAs, if our hope is in, you know, the retirement account, if our hope is in one more big sale, if our hope is in something other than the Lord God Almighty, then we're trusting in that which will become a burden to us rather than that which will carry our burdens. The Lord God Almighty. So we want to make sure that God has that rightful place in our lives. That God is doing that rightful thing within our lives. To whom will you liken me, the Lord says, and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike. Now he's speaking of these other idols. What, what, to what other God will you compare me? They lavish gold out of the bag. They weigh silver in the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a God. And they prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place and it stands. From its place it shall not move. Though one cries to it, it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this and show yourselves men. I like it when he, when he lays this out because it reminds me of Psalm 115. If, uh, if you want to turn to Psalm 115 with me, Psalm 115 builds on this, uh, this very same concept. Psalm 115, verse 1. Actually, let's go down to verse 3. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols, silver and gold, the works of men's hands. They have mouths but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. We become like the God we serve. And so that's the point that the Lord is making out and making for us in chapter 46. Remember this, and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. One third of the Bible is prophecy. And of the prophecies in the Bible, not one has not come to pass. Now there are some that we are still waiting to see fulfilled, but the evidence of that which has already been fulfilled shows us that the Word of God is absolutely true. Oh, it's, it's a mind-boggling when you get into the percentages and you just talk about the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. And if you only talk about the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ that he couldn't control, there's eight. And what is the chance that one man would fulfill eight prophecies that he could not control? And I don't remember the number. It's just a ten with a bunch of zeros after it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Until they said, you cover the state of Texas three foot deep with silver dollars. And then you take one silver dollar and you color it red. And you fly over to the state of Texas in a helicopter and throw it out the window. 
Then you take a guy and you blindfold him at the border of the state of Texas and you tell him he can walk across Texas as long as he would like, but he can only reach down and pick up one silver dollar. The chance of one guy fulfilling eight is the same as one guy walking across Texas, stopping, randomly reaching down and picking up the one and only one red silver dollar. Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies. That's one man fulfilling eight. The Lord says, who has declared it from of old? He says, I'm going to tell you what's going to take place so that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am God, that I am true. He says in verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Again, he's talking about Babylon ultimately being overrun uh, by the Medo-Persians whom he is going to call like a bird of prey out of the east. And they're going to come and take Babylon. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My My salvation shall not linger. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. I will place salvation in Zion. Zion's just another name for Jerusalem. Mount Moriah. I will place my salvation in Jerusalem. Where was it that Jesus died? Right outside the city of Jerusalem. Where is it that Jesus will rule? Reign and rule as King of kings and Lord of lords from the throne of David in Jerusalem. His salvation God Almighty in the flesh, Jesus Christ. So as we go through the Scripture, we see truly the Scriptures point to the Lord. They point to the things that God's going to do and that God's going to work out. Why? What's, what's the big deal about it all? It's so that we can know beyond a shadow of doubt. I can put my hope, my faith, my trust in this book that is unlike any other book on the planet. There is nothing even remotely like it. Start to do a study on the Word of God and where the Word of God came from. The 12,400 extant copies of just the New Testament. The fact that even if we didn't have any complete books, they could rebuild the entire New Testament just from quotes from the early church fathers. The reality that no other literature on the face of the planet has that many. Homer's Odyssey is the next closest It has somewhere in the neighborhood of 300. The Word of God, 12,400. Big difference. People that that say, well, how can you put your hope and your your trust in the Word of God? I mean, how do we know where that all came from? It's very simple. The Lord, He spoke it to Moses. He began to write it down. He wrote the first five books, passed it on to the next leader, passed it on to the next, and to the next, and the next. How can that possibly work? Well, you see, the nation of Israel was especially groomed to keep and be keepers of God's word. When you go to Israel, you'll have an opportunity to see the book of Isaiah that dates so far back, it it predates everything else we ever had by a thousand years. And that book of Isaiah and the one you have in your lap are identical. The only differences between the two 
is variations in spellings of some of the cities. It's the only difference. Why? The scripture tells in the book of Timothy, the word of God is God-breathed. That God spoke through men and women in the past. 66 books, 40 authors, 1,500 years, assembled together, brought together over time. Other books were, were, were thought to be uh, real and later on found out not to be. They call those books the Apocrypha. They're, they're not in the, the canonized scripture, nor were they in the canonized scripture under the first canon. So when we look at the scripture that we have before us, it's the same one, same books taught in the early church, same quotations by the early church fathers brought to us so that we can realize I put my faith in that. I can put my trust in that. I can know that while everyone else is going to lie to me, this can be absolute truth, my foundation. Everyone else is standing on sand. Sand sinks. We're called to stand on the rock. Who is the rock? Jesus Christ. He is the rock. Who is the word? Jesus Christ. He is the word. The word is my rock. We can hold on to it. Amen? We're going to spend some time in prayer. We, we always end Sunday evenings with a time of prayer. So we'll invite you to, to just join us. I'll start. Anybody here that has something on their heart that they want to pray about, we want to invite you to, that you can pray to yourself or you can pray out loud as we pray together Uh, we want to open that opportunity to you Uh, as the lord leads you the lord gives you a scripture to share share a scripture if god uh, gives you a word to share share a word as we gather together in this place and at this time we just want to be open and sensitive to the moving of the holy spirit in our life and as we do that we also want to give as many people an opportunity to do to, to share as we can. So we just ask that you try to limit the things that you're sharing to three to five minutes and we'll provide opportunity for others to pray as well. Why don't you join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you. We can come before you. We can hold on to the truth of your word, Father, and we can believe. God, we ask as we just seek you in this time, Father, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would move upon your church. Father, that you would help us, each of us, Lord God, to to be made right with you. Father God, if we need to repent, God, give us the strength to do that. Father, as we need to be strengthened in you, Father, we pray, God, that you you would help us. Father, that you would anoint us. Lord God, we ask that, uh, Father, you would be whatever we need. Father, I pray for Jeannie Reynolds. I pray for your continued healing in her life, Lord, that you would give her victory over cancer. I pray for her family, Lord, that you would give them victory over uh, worry and fret. I pray, Lord, that you would be their peace, that you would be their strength. Lord, I pray for others in our church family that are struggling with with illness or sickness or trying to overcome different battles, uh, battlefields in their life, Lord. And I pray, God, that they would find in you, even as Israel found, a God who is mighty to save. Lord, we pray that, 
you, Father God, would be glorified and magnified in this place, Lord Jesus, as we seek you. Father, may we, your church, be of one mind and of one spirit. Father, unified together in prayer as we seek your face.